0: Hey everyone, first off, we at Thamir Strange want to acknowledge and celebrate the First Australians, on whose traditional lands we are recording this podcast, and pay our respects to the elders of the Ngawal and Ngambri peoples, past, present and emerging. Let's go! Welcome to the podcast, brought to you with support from the Australian Anthropological Society, the Australian National University's College of Asia and Pacific, and the College of Arts and Social Sciences, the Australian Centre for the Public Awareness of Science, and produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. So, ladies and gentlemen, our executive producer, Ian Pollock is off to the United States this week to the AAA conference in California, and also to visit family in New York. I, for one, am very envious of him. I wish I was joining him for the nice, refreshing cold weather in New York. Here in Canberra, it's starting to get very hot. Our interview today was with Associate Professor Katarina Tiawa. Katarina was born and raised in Fiji, and is of Banaban, e and African-American descent. She was Convener of Pacific Studies at ANU from 2007 to 2015, Head of the Department of Gender, Media, and Cultural Studies from 2014 to 2015, and founder of the Pacifica Australia Outreach Program with Professor Kent Anderson from 2007 to 2012. She is now Associate Professor in the School of Culture, History and Language at ANU. In our episode, we talk about her research on the island of Banaba and the impact that European phosphate mining and colonisation has had on the island. She tells us that parts of Banaba are quite literally spread across the globe as fertiliser used in industrial agriculture in countries like Australia, New Zealand and elsewhere. We also talk a little about our ongoing theme of decolonization, discussing what a decolonized anthropology might look like and what methods it might employ. Here it is, without further ado, me and Katarina Tiowa talking about phosphate mining in Banaba and the ongoing decolonization of anthropology. If you don't mind, what I'd like to do first is get you to take us on the journey of a a lump of phosphate because you wrote your first book about Barnaba Island, which is a major point in the phosphate mining industry in the kind of British and Australian colonial period ultimately. So can you talk us through what happened on Barnaba Island and what role did phosphate play in that?
1: So Barnaba is in the Central Pacific, um, it's about 200 kilometers away from Nauru, so Nauru is probably uh, or is its closest neighbor, and it's also its twin in terms of its geological formation, which is mainly phosphate rock. And phosphate rock is partially sourced from guano, but also sourced from sedimentation of rock underneath the ocean and that pressure creating an, a much older version of phosphate than guano, which is sort of fresh bird poo. Yeah. So part of what phosphate rock is, ancient maritime or marine life, you know, the bones and fossils of ancient marine life sedimented through that water pressure over hundreds and thousands of years. So I guess to understand the journey of a piece of phosphate or a lump of phosphate rock, you have to imagine how islands are created over hundreds of thousands and even millions of years. So what I was trying to get at in my book is this understanding of land in deep time and then comparing that with human time or industrial time Mm -hmm. and the huge differences between those conceptions of land and place. And also to think about how industry can transform something that took millions of years to grow in a a very, very short space of time. So if you include that journey of how long it takes to make phosphate rock, it's a million-year process. A very long time. A very, very long time. But then once it gets into the hands of mining operations and mining companies, it is then seen as this commodity as a commodity of relevance to the agricultural industry, the global agricultural industry, because it's a major input into farming, into mass industrial farming. And so the phosphate, depending on what era you're mining it, is extracted from the landscape, and phosphate forms between these coral pinnacles. So the skeleton of the island is the coral pinnacle, and the phosphate forms in between. So it's like this calcium carbonate skeleton and then the phosphate kind of fills in the gaps.
0: So that's why we get that
1: pinnacle, pinnacle shape. That's okay, right. Yeah. Which is, you know, very prominent on Nauru, yeah. very prominent on Barnaba and also probably on Christmas Island. Not the K- Christmas Island in Kitabas, but the Christmas Island, which is part of Australia, which is oh. in the Indian Ocean, yeah. which was... A previous phosphate mine and also houses detention centers Mm. for uh, people seeking uh, refugee status. So there is this really not very nice relationship between phosphate islands and offshore processing centers um, of asylum seekers. So the phosphate is excavated or extracted either mechanically or in the beginning of the the mining on Barnaba by hand. So you had people with wheelbarrows and shovels and picks and all kinds of implements to kind of break up the rock. And the first thing that has to happen on the island is any water needs to be extracted. So there's a kind of a process where you take it from the rock face and then you put it in these drying bins that extract all the moisture, all the water out of it. And then from there, um, it's sort of ground down into these much finer, much smaller particles and then shipped offshore from the extraction and drying phase to processing plants in Australia or New Zealand, in the case of the the rock mine from Barnaba. And at one time other places such as Japan, Honolulu, places in Europe. I came across one piece of the archive that said, that showed me the shipments that went to Latvia, Lithuania, wow. and Estonia, which was like, whoa. <laughs> so that phosphate rock goes to whoever the buyers are, and usually it's um, fertilizer manufacturers. Yeah. So With the Barnabah phosphate, it was people who were producing superphosphate. So basically what happens is you take sulfuric acid and you add it to that dried, crushed rock, and then it becomes phosphoric acid, which is the P2O5, so phosphorus and, and oxygen. And that P2O5 is like the liquid gold of the fertilizer, the global fertilizer industry. It's the way manufacturers and producers and consumers know how valuable the rock is by how much P2O5 you can get out of it and how much work has to go in to getting a higher percentage of P2O5. So there's some phosphate rock that needs a heap of work mm-hmm. to get this much. P two O five, and then there's some which is so rich in phosphate yeah. that you'd need to do less work to get that P two O five. Barnaba and Nauru were, if not the highest, some of the highest yielded, highest percentages of P two O five compared to how much rock had to be, you know, mined. The big trick for the mining industry was just getting it offshore into the ships to the ports where the superphosphate could be um, manufactured because there aren't these natural ports and harbors and places that you can weigh anchor on And So the shipping process was actually really, really super difficult. But once you get it to the port, then it goes through that chemical process with sulfuric acid and then it's made into superphosphate fertilizer. And depending on whether or not you're in New Zealand or Australia, it's then distributed to farmers and spread across the landscapes. So in New Zealand, that was mainly done um, from the sky through aerial top dressing because there was so much hilly country in New Zealand. So they had to figure out a way, how do we get this superphosphate onto, you know, these hilly landscapes and spreading it by hand or by truck or whatever didn't make a lot of sense. So they, after World War I and World War Two, they figured out a way to use old, you know, military aircraft in order to distribute it from the sky. wow! So it's this amazing loop if you factor in the guano part of what makes phosphate rock, where you have two sources of phosphate, one from the sky and one from the sea. So you have the marine phosphate, you have the bird guano, Um, source of phosphate. And then in the context of New Zealand, it kind of (laughs) goes back to the sky and then gets distributed across the land in that way. And then in Australia, it was taken by train tracks, you know, say across Geelong, across all of those um, Victorian farming spaces and some in South Australia, some in New South Wales, some in Western Australia in these Hessian or, you know, burlap sacks and then distributed to the farmers who, you know, had... Various ways of putting it across their land. And so some of it was used, you know, for wheat and grain and that sort of thing. I mean, basically, what phosphate does is it strengthens the roots of plants and Mm. it makes it able to absorb nutrients and minerals and other things from the soil in a way that it wouldn't without the phosphate. So it just makes the roots stronger and everything more nutritious, you do have to have water to, for that to yeah. work. So it's, it's not just you add phosphate and everything's great. There has to be, in, in the context of a drought, it would be very, very hard right, okay. um, for that to work. If there is water, then the phosphate does its work and everything grows and everything's amazing. And you can use it on pastures, you know, for cattle and sheep and all of that, or, you know, for wheat and grain. And it, essentially it increased agricultural production and exports exponentially. So there was a direct relationship with how much phosphate was applied and the increase in production and exports of agriculture in both Australia and New Zealand. So
0: Banaba ends up spread across the world effectively in the form of this phosphate industry.
1: Yes, it's not just a metaphor. It's literally a material fact that the island gets spread across the world and enters these ecological and food chains. So it ends up in animals, it ends up in humans, comes out the other side. Some of it, you know, leaches out into waterways. So it's spread everywhere.
0: But what does it mean for the people who lived on the island?
1: So there's a number of ways in which you can think about how that movement of the land impacts the people. One is a straight economic way of thinking, so in the context of mining and other kinds of natural resource extraction, the compensation is usually money, you know, so we'll pay you to lease your land or we'll pay you royalties for how much we dig up. So in one way, there was a relatively small amount of monetary compensation that came from the mining, so that was one way in which it was impacted. But from an indigenous perspective, the impact was even greater than that. And I can imagine it would be for any indigenous group whose landscape is mined for any kind of mineral, not just phosphate. So for Barnaba, one of the key factors in my work is thinking about how small it is. Because there are lots of ideas about scale and about significance of scale when it comes to thinking about... What matters in this world? You know, like global forces impact. The big influence the little. In the case of something like phosphate in the islands of Nauru and Banaba, it's the little impacting the big because you have six square kilometer, so two and a half square mile island that somehow yields 22 million tons of phosphate that can then get distributed across much, much larger landscapes and make their products grow exponentially. So the impact on the Barnabans who see land not just as land, as a commodity, or an object to be bought and sold. How Barnabans see it, um, and the concept I used in my work, was this word teapa, which means the land, but it also means the people. So apa can mean land, rock, and people. That is one complex. That is one integrated complex where land, body, and people are not disconnected from each other. And that was the case over thousands of years on Barnaba. The breaking apart of that means culturally, socially, spiritually, those relationships start to fragment and become unhooked from each other. On top of that, Barnabans were displaced. So their land was moved and they were mm. moved. So it's this double displacement of both the landscape and the people. So the way I think about it as a Burn is in terms of fragmented identities and that fragmentation not just being a social or cultural thing, but a material thing because the two... Are interconnected. And even if the land moves and travels, it doesn't mean we're disconnected from it. But it does make who we are more complex and very multi sighted not just because people have moved, but because the foundation of who we are has moved, which is the land, the landscape. And that landscape is activated in that way, you know, through a number of processes, not just the spiritual significance of of the landscape and the way in which people imagine how the universe came to be, right? So through cosmologies, but also through the fact that our ancestors are buried over and over again in that landscape, which means from a very organic perspective, your ancestors are part of that landscape, because there isn't Six square kilometers, there's not a lot of place to put people. So literally, the body of the people is in that landscape. So when it's mined and crushed and dug up, you're not just doing it with rock, you're also doing it with people, with the remains of people. And we know that happened on Barnaba for sure.
0: Can you talk to me a little bit about how you managed to do this this really interesting multi-sided piece of field work and how your experiences as a partially Barnabin person influenced the ways that we can do anthropology because I know that you've been critical of the kind of objectivist god's eye view of anthropology. Can you talk us through a little bit of that?
1: So I'm critical of the objectivist bird's eye view of all social science <laughs> and humanities and you know, even natural science research, for similar and different reasons from from this project. And, you know, my life as an academic, I suppose. But I guess one of the reasons I was always skeptical about that approach in anthropology and the social sciences was because my main motivation for doing a PhD and for becoming an academic was to be able to unpack and uncover this particular personal history. So people have different reasons for pursuing PhDs. The stories I often hear are fairly random. You know, they're like, what part of the world is fascinating and interesting? I shall go there. And there isn't a deep connection or relationship to the people or place. And I am not motivated by those Uh sorts of things. I'm always motivated by relationships. I'm always um, motivated by mutual obligations and reciprocity and those sorts of things. That That is the norm in the Pacific where I was born and raised. You always think about things in terms of relationships. So being in academia for me was always about doing something that deepens those kinds of relationships. And in the case of Banaba, it's human relationships and kinship, but it's also this relationship to the past and to honoring that and to thinking about that in terms of issues of social justice or historical justice or, you know, challenging colonial and imperial histories and activities. When I started doing my PhD, I had just come out of a master's program in Pacific Island Studies, an interdisciplinary program at the University of Hawaii in the Center for Pacific Island Studies. And that was an incredibly liberating and powerful and empowering experience where we were taught to question everything in academia, to not take texts and ideas at face value. And just because they'd been written down by some powerful guys or, you know, famous people, that was truth we were actually taught to really critically unpack and question knowledge because we knew that knowledge really benefited islanders and islands and natives and indigenous people or people of color in general so i'd come out of that training i suppose in in the masters program and had you know supervisors who were activists who would be on the front line marching for indigenous sovereignty and indigenous rights, especially in the Hawaiian context. So then I come to ANU and it's the complete opposite. (laughs) There is no marching involved. It's very hierarchical, it's very privileged, it's very comfortable with its form of knowledge production and the power and the hierarchies and status involved with that. So I don't know if they hadn't had a Pacific Islander for a while or what in anthropology, but I was immediately confronted with what for me were quite offensive ideas, actually. Like I sat in some seminars where anthropologists said indigenous people are are not so stupid. They don't think rocks think. They know the rocks don't speak and the rocks don't think. And that was extremely offensive to me. And I was brand new, like literally, you know, like that was probably in my first couple of months in anthropology and I had to be in anthropology because my supervisor was in anthropology. So it just kind of followed that way. And I suddenly realized I was in a context in which people didn't value indigenous ways of knowing and being. They studied it and built their careers off of that, but they didn't believe it themselves And even more so, they didn't think the people they were studying actually believed it. They thought it was all strategic or, you know, some kind of tricksy way (laughs) of being in the world, which I also found offensive.
0: Fairly. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) fairly,
1: especially if you write books about it and you never believed it for a second. (laughs) You thought they were all duped because they were backwards anyway. So I got that kind of uh, feeling in the seminars and symposia and conferences. And I quickly realized that that wasn't going to work for me. Um, I was also challenged on the fact that I was from the culture that I was engaging with. Somebody said to me, aren't you cheating? Because you're from that place. These are your people. You are cheating. And I thought, okay, in the wrong discipline. (laughs) So I found that offensive. And then on top of it, I didn't just wanna look at Barnabin history and culture and these histories of mining and displacement, but I wanted to do it in a creative way because part of the decolonization training that I had received at the University of Hawaii was also challenging normative forms of knowledge production, which are mainly textual. And when you come from cultures that are mainly oral or visual, or performance-based, or embodied, your mode of knowledge production is immediately seen to be less than textual forms. So as long as somebody writes it down, theirs is authoritative, even if it's the worst missionary on the planet, because they wrote it down, that text in the archives is going to be seen as being more truthful Mm. than the song or the chant or the dance that was created at the same time. So I was already skeptical of that stuff, and I wanted to be able to explore, you know, these histories and cultural expressions associated with those histories in other ways. And interestingly enough, one of the first things that happened, and this is something I'm very cognizant of now as, you know, a more senior, quote-unquote senior academic, I was empowered by senior academics then in my first three months of doing my PhD to embrace other ways of doing research. It wasn't everyone. It certainly didn't come out of anthropology, (laughs) but it was from this quite prominent historian, Professor Greg Denning, who was, you know, widely known and widely missed today as one of these people who really loved his students and worked really closely with his students and would run these two-week long, amazing workshops, Whoa. which he called wow. Challenges to Perform. challenged is to perform knowledge. Yeah, And he ran them at the ANU. And it was back in the days when Cass had a Center for Cross-Cultural Research and all these quite innovative, you know, research groups that were really trying to, I think, empower students to do things differently. He ran this two-week workshop and a whole bunch of us who were doing Pacific topics signed up. And that it was almost like that gave me permission to just do things my way, because what he had us do was we did have to read texts and we had to do a little bit of thinking, but we came with our PhDs, our topics, our thesis statements, and then he said, "and now you have to perform it." So it didn't matter what discipline you were from; it was completely mm. open to people from the sciences, from engineering, humanities, you know, anthropology, etc. And they all had to reimagine their projects for that two weeks and perform it. So I already had this background in dance, and I was like, "Woohoo!" I knew exactly what you know what to do. Yeah. So from then on, my project changed, and luckily I had a supervisor, Margaret Jolly, who who had already known me as a master student and kind of knew, you know, the kind of critical. <laughs> work that I would do responding to, you know, these normative hierarchical forms of knowledge production, she let me explore these other ways of doing things. And everything in the archives, everything in my ethnographic research completely backed up my creative ideas. But I realized I would not have privileged those things. And I might not even have noticed those things if I'd followed a conventional anthropology, methodology, theoretical framework track. Greg Denning's workshop gave us permission to go, everything is relevant. And you can um, reframe, recreate and reproduce it in other ways as well. You don't have to just put everything on the page. So that's, you know, that completely changed my whole, I think my whole career trajectory, it just opened up all kinds of pathways. And everyone who was in that workshop, this workshop was in 1999, this PhD workshop. Everyone who was in that, or most people, are doing amazing things today. Mm. They're in these amazing positions and they know how to integrate creative thinking and creative work into their you know into their roles and into the kind of research and teaching that they do so it was so it was such a formative moment which i've often dreamed <laughs> this too can happen again at anu maybe <laughs>
0: about decolonizing the social sciences uh, and it's something we've tried to talk about a bit on this show just recently. Do you think we've come any way in doing so and do you, or do you think there's still a, a kind of mountain there to be surveilled?
1: I think at ANU there's a mountain mm. left to climb Beyond ANU, I think there are departments and programs that are definitely putting themselves out there and trying to critically think through this. And I definitely think it's happening a lot in the U.S. So when you look at American anthropology, they're always asking these questions about their practice and about their discipline and about themselves. And they're always thinking about the politics of it. The thinking about the politics of it is not something I see as much in anthropology. Here, which is partly why I don't find as much kinship with it. I would if people, you know, grappled with the politics of, of knowledge production. So I do think there's a ways to go. I think ANU's a bit hard because it's been quite successful doing the form of anthropology that it does and hasn't felt compelled. By the public or by politics to do anything differently. So it's almost like a safe space mm. for conventional.
0: Conservative.
1: Conservative is the better word. Conservative approaches. So I think there's a long journey ahead. In my day as a student, I definitely tried and I was definitely, um, what's a good word to use? Punished. Oh. <laughs> or critiqued publicly for trying to do things differently. And very difficult at the time, but also made me stronger in my convictions about the way I do my scholarly work, you know, because you don't learn unless you go through something super difficult and painful publicly, (laughs) as happened a couple of times to me. But I found a lot of, what's the word, support and like a home within anthropology in feminist anthropology and in the work of people like Kiran Narayan mm. where stories were kind of the the focus rather than, you know, some abstract conceptual framework that you then tried to shove everything into so I did find places or peoples, or genealogies within the discipline that made more sense to me. You know, there's definitely an indigenous or native anthropology kind of space. There's feminist anthropology. There's people who do creative work. But over time, their work was less valued, you know. So as I saw the discipline kind of changing in more neoliberal, conservative ways which actually privileged european thinking more rather than less i stayed on the margins if not right outside <laughs> the box of anthropology
0: what do you think a decolonized social sciences would look like
1: i think of it as a very transdisciplinary kind of project meaning it would decolonize, it would be decolonized in terms of form as much as content So form in terms of words, text, journals, journal articles, books, conference papers, that being challenged and made equal with performance, embodied forms of knowledge production, the visual arts, exhibitions, you know, those sorts of things. All of those things would count. All of those things would seem to be scholarly, would be seen to be critical and nuanced and productive kinds of expressions of work, our work. So that would be one front. It would be in terms of form and format and platform and materials. The other would be in terms of seriously dealing with power, with the politics of it all, with the hierarchies and this idea that some people are more expert than other people which i don't fully buy you know and i i say this to my to my students to my undergraduate students i am learning as much as you are mm. this is an exchange of knowledge and ideas and this stuff that you have and that you know that i don't know so it's not a top down transfer of knowledge and so decolonizing the hierarchy and dealing with the politics is another kind of work that requires some self-reflection and ability to humble yourself in the face of other ways of knowing and doing. And I think some people are able to do that. Like I, I really liked um, Paige West's mm. um, recent editing of, you know, voices speaking to. I think it was the how journal drama, which was pretty big drama. I liked the way she talked about the decolonizing work that needs to be done. And I also think what she's talking about is what indigenous academics and indigenous scholars and scholars of color have been trying to do for decades, you know, trying to do things differently and think about things differently and not reproduce the same hierarchies and the same relationships of power. So those would be the two fronts, I think, that would have to be where a decolonizing project would have to be worked on. But then it would have to be manifested as much as in pedagogy and teaching as it was in research and, you know, producing knowledge. And also the other dimension of that would be outreach, engaging communities, engaging the public, engaging the popular, engaging policymakers and all those other stakeholders in knowledge. And all of that, for me, constitutes a transdisciplinary approach. For me, transdisciplinarity is what the Center for Public Awareness of Science is doing, meaning it's working across different fields and disciplines and approaches and methodologies, but then it's moving beyond the academy. So the the trans part for me in transdisciplinary is when you truly step outside of the academy and you say, who does this matter to? Who do we need to talk with? Who do we need to share what we're doing? Is it children? Is it families? Mm. Is it the public? Is it policymakers and politicians? Is it doctors, nurses? That's the transdisciplinary part, which I think some social scientists do and do well because their work has some immediate relevance to some industry or area and some don't do ever because, you know, they're not compelled to or people haven't shown them how their work might be Mm. relevant. And I don't think everyone has to push themselves to do that sort of thing, but I think everyone ought to think about it and consider it. And the other thing I was just talking about to my colleagues today in an earlier meeting was, for me, the best time to do that thinking about creativity, about decolonization, about transdisciplinarity, is in the beginning of your project. Sure, you can do it in the middle or at the end because some new idea forms. But if you build it in at the beginning, because somebody has said, this is okay, you can do this now. You can experiment now even though you're a new PhD student. It's okay. You don't have to do everything like me. You don't have to jump through all the hoops before you're allowed to innovate. If you can do that at the beginning and design your project in a way that is open and inclusive and wayfinds through knowledge rather than targeting. Certain things. I must answer this thesis statement, or I will incorporate that theoretical framework. No, no, no. You follow the people and you follow the story and you follow the thing, and then you think about that other stuff later. So if you build that in at the beginning, I think it makes for a greater potential of decolonization. I'm not saying it's going to be successful because, you know. But, yeah, I do think you need to be empowered at the beginning.
0: Again, it's really nice to hear someone say that because I certainly know from my own experience, writing now I often wish I could do more creative things and I would really like to. Sometimes I think I could just chuck the theory out and stick with something nice and ethnographic. when When you
1: try to publish your thesis, your publisher probably will tell you to chuck out all the theory. People make you do that stuff to prove that you're smart or worthy or whatever. And I don't think it necessarily serves the content or the process or the people or the PhD student. You know, it's a jumping through hoops kind of process, which I don't really agree with.
0: We have a, a tiny little bit of time left and I'm about to open a can of worms, I know. But I have an anxiety because I'm an anthropologist as much as I loathe using that term, who learnt from people who are outside of my culture. And there's been a lot of discussion lately, particularly on on Twitter, about whether or not there's any place for people to study outside, in inverted commas, of their own culture. It's a really big topic, but do you have any any feel for that?
1: Okay, so the first thing I'll say is, It's already been happening for centuries, so step one, (laughs) permission has neither been sought nor given for all the work that's been produced up till now by people outside of other people's cultures, so that's the norm. So today, when that's being challenged and people go, oh my God, there's no place for me, oh my God, do I need permission? I feel like that's the wrong reaction. That's the wrong response. So a more productive way of doing it isn't reactive, isn't to go, this is a black and white thing. You're in or you're out. You're an insider or you're an outsider. That's not really a good representation of reality. Anyway, things are more complex. I've got students who are, you know, Anglo-Australian who are doing Pacific studies and who have come through my classes going, am I allowed? Am I da-da-da? And again, what I try to say is a more productive way of thinking about it is if I genuinely and humbly learn from and then incorporate Indigenous, for example, if we're talking about the Indigenous context, Indigenous ways of relating and thinking and knowing and being and doing, is that a more equal way of doing my work versus thinking about this in terms of ethnicity and race and all of those sorts of things? So that's definitely one way to think about it. You know, like if you're not of the heritage of the people you're working with, you're an automatic outsider. Or a better way of thinking about it is to think about about it from an epistemological and an ontological perspective. And I don't want to go into too much detail on those things in terms of what anthropology has been trying to do with those things. But what I'm saying is, can one really humbly inhabit other perspectives and ways of knowing and being and doing and be transformed by it. So not studying it from the outside so you can say this is the way those people think, but saying this is valuable and people have survived for centuries in difficult environments thinking this way. So probably I've got something to learn here and to be transformed by in my own life. And that's what I empower my students to do so that I don't have to tell them what critical political questions to ask. They're asking it even if they're not indigenous. They know how to champion these ideas and these ways of doing things and not feel like there's no place for them. So empowerment isn't just about race or class or ethnicity. Empowerment is about... Helping people feel comfortable to be able to critique their own positions, their own positionality without falling apart, being strong in that self reflection and critique, and also not seeing that as some kind of wishy washy navel gazing, you know, kind of process or practice, but actually being empowered to be critical and therefore better allies and better champions for other ways of knowing and other ways of doing things, which I think, you know, I think Paige West is a good example of that. I'm sure that didn't come to her overnight in her seniority as a, you know, as a professor, but something that she'd been critically thinking about along the way and somebody probably empowered her to do that.
0: I think, unfortunately, we're out of time. Um, Katerina Teohar, thank you so much for coming on. It's been a personally moving for me, actually, to hear you talk. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: So that was it, me and Katarina Teowa. Today's episode was produced by me. Simon Theobald, with help from the other Familiar Strangers, Julia Brown, Ian Pollock, and Jodie Lee Trambath. Our executive producer is Ian Pollock, and our assistant producers are Diana Caddo and Matthew Fong. And our interns this year are Alina Rizvi and Alyssa Asmolovskaya. Subscribe to the Familiar Strange podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, and all the other familiar places. And don't forget to leave us a rating or a review with your likes and dislikes. It helps people find the show and helps us make the show better you can find the show notes including a list of all the books and papers mentioned today plus our blog about anthropology's place in the world at thefamiliarstrange.com if you want to contribute to the blog or have anything to say to me or the other hosts of this program email us at submissions at thefamiliarstrange.com tweet to us at tfstweets or look us up on facebook and instagram music by pete Dabro. special thanks to nick farrelly will grant and maud rowe Thanks for listening. See you in two weeks. Until next time, keep talking strange.